I felt like in a startup, you know, meritocracy thrives. And it sort of doesn't matter what you're doing or even what you're good at. It sort of matters how quickly you could learn and be good at something that the company needs to do. I had, you know, kind of been doing my own product marketing before we had product marketing. But I also, like, you know, understood selling. Like, I had a pretty well-informed perspective on what's successful. I benefited a lot of my career from staying with a company that struggled when, you know, when other people were leaving. You're listening to the Enterprise Ready Podcast, a show aiming to change the enterprise software narrative from how to sell to enterprises to how to build for enterprises. We'll interview industry experts and enterprise software founders as we break through the jargon, establish a common vernacular, and share the lessons learned from building the world's best enterprise software. Hi, I'm Grant Miller, creator of Enterprise Ready and founder and CEO of Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications. Check us out at replicated.com. The Enterprise Ready Podcast is brought to you by Heavybit, a program dedicated to helping startups take their developer products to market. For more information, visit heavybit.com. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. In this episode of the Enterprise Ready Podcast, I sit down with Jay Simons, former president at Atlassian and current partner at Bond Capital. Jay is well known for his contributions and leadership at Atlassian, where he helped the company transition from startup to the massively publicly traded behemoth it is today. And this episode is a doozy. Jay and I start by going deep on his early career, learning about his experiences growing the go-to-market at Plumtree Software during the original dot-com boom and subsequent bust. There are tons of important lessons here, but I think that Jay's time at Plumtree exemplifies how early employees can really launch their careers at an enterprise software startup by stepping up to solve some new challenges on a regular basis. We then transition to Jay's time at Atlassian. We learned so much about the early product, adherence to first principles thinking, and how they broke many of the unwritten rules along the way. We focus on how they made the transition to become enterprise ready, both in terms of features, but also in terms of processes and priorities. Finally, we conclude with a little about what Jay is up to now at Bond Capital, where he's investing in growth stage enterprise software companies. I really hope you enjoy the show. All right, Jay, thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me, Grant. Cool. So to get started, I'd love to just kind of hear the story of your career and sort of your background in enterprise software. How far back do you want to go? I mean, you know, I noticed you've kind of been in enterprise software most of your career, right? So let's start at the beginning. It sounds like you started kind of before the, I would call it the, the first internet boom. So yeah. it seems like you've been in this ecosystem for a long time. Yeah, my first real job, I guess. You know, I worked at a law firm through college and then kind of took um, some gap time after college and did something, you know, wildly different. Then, um, you know, moved down to San Francisco to get into technology. And, you know, had um, sort of been interviewing around for, you know, for sales jobs and inside sales jobs. I, I felt like that was my, you know, my kind of entry point into technology without kind of a comp sci background or, you know, really a, a functional background in any other discipline. I knew that I, um, I was interested in technology. I knew that I could understand it and, you know, translate that into some sales skill. And so I was applying for, you know, mostly entry level sales jobs. And I actually, the, the first offer that I got was from Oracle. 
and I was living um, in San Francisco with you know a bunch of friends from college, and you know the job was you know I was going to start like in three and a half weeks. So it was an offer with you know start date kind of three and a half weeks into the future, and I was dreading actually the commute down to Redwood City. And I, I was you know I was excited by Oracle in part because I felt like it was a place where it was sort of a university for technology sales, and you know you could kind of ladder up really quickly if you wanted to to start your career in technology selling. But I had uh, kind of in the intervening period, I'd gone out to, um, to visit a friend in Las Vegas and uh, I was sort of bemoaning the, the, you know, the commute and this idea that it was, you know, kind of a big company. And, and he said, well, you know, a friend of mine started a company in the city, an enterprise software company. If you're interested in enterprise software, you should talk to him. It's just a startup. So I kind of came back to San Francisco and uh, connected with his friend, and, and that was a guy named Glenn Kelman, who's now the CEO of Redfin. And he had he was a co-founder of this uh, enterprise software company, actually in San Francisco in you know '97. That was really rare. Everybody was basically down in the valley or outside of the city, and they were you know maybe I don't know 16 or 17 people and. I went to meet with him and, you know, he was like, yeah, we're just thinking about, you know, adding, we've got like, you know, one field rep in Chicago and, you know, one field rep in New York. And we were thinking about adding, you know, an inside sales uh, rep to kind of, you know, help almost like SDR help, you know, qualified demand and kind of work with them to generate leads. And so sure, let's talk to you about that job. And I kind of interviewed quickly, went around the company and, uh, you know, one funny detail is the Oracle offer. What I remember was like, Twenty-eight grand. It was like twenty-eight thousand five hundred dollars or something. Which at the time, you know, I, you know, my last job, I think I was paid hourly as like a paralegal in a law firm, and so it was sort of like a first salary job for me. And I remember thinking, yeah, it was like pretty decent. That's sort of going to pay the bills and you know pay off a little debt. And I got this offer from Plumtree. And I remember I was like in kind of in the conference room and, you know, the VP of sales at the time and said, well, we'd like to make you an offer. There's a sheet of paper on the table. And, you know, they, they pushed it across the table and, uh, you know, I lifted up and looked at it and it was like a starting salary of $45,000. <laughs> and I remember probably visibly gulping, but, you know, I did the, you know, I'm going to have to consider this deeply overnight or something. So can I get back to you in the morning? But, you know, like inside my body was screaming, yes. <laughs> And, uh, you know, I remember I, I kind of like ran back home to all the roommates and I was like, you know, this is going to be awesome because, you know, I was really motivated by what the company was doing and I was motivated by being in the city and not having to rent a car, buy a car and kind of sit on the train and commute down to Redwood City. So that was my first job, like in inside sales. And the funny thing about that company is, you know, that company basically grew from Virtually zero dollars in revenue when I started, up to eighty million dollars three years later, and so it was just explosive growth. Wow! And I wasn't in inside sales very long. I remember in the office there was like almost these little—I don't even know what they were. They're were like maybe phone booths. Like it was probably like a phone booth. Maybe the office that we occupied used to be a law firm, and it was sort of like a—you know—this is pre kind of open office plans. But you know, there was this quiet area where you could sort of like sit. It was tiny. I mean, I could touch all four walls just by extending my arms, and that was my office. And I sat in there and just you know started cranking and you know calling into companies and you know pitching Plumtree and trying to understand how to sell. And you know, it, within the first couple of months, I actually like I'd had this opportunity in Canada. And it was with the Ministry of Tourism in British Columbia. And it seemed like a reasonable opportunity. I was sort of talking to the team kind of all over the phone. And I went to the VP of sales and we didn't have a rep in the West. 
So I said, well, who should work this? And she said, well, why don't you work it? You know, just see what you can do with it. And anyway, I, I managed to close that deal. And it was sort of one of the, the bigger deals for the company entirely over the phone. Mm. And um, that was sort of within my, my first handful of months, which was kind of a win. And then the company was growing so quickly that they were like, you know, we need you out in the field. And it was like, you know, it was a field, traditional enterprise selling job where, you know, the ASP was 150 grand and, you know, it was a big complex, you know, enterprise software sell. And that was sort of the start of my career in sales and in enterprise software. And just briefly talk a little bit about what Plumtree did. I read a bit about it. People were comparing it to Yahoo Portal at the time, which I thought was funny, but, you know, kind of give me a modern context on what it was. Yeah, Plumtree began as sort of a, you know, a knowledge management system for the enterprise. And, you know, like it always borrowed consumer concepts. And so the earliest incarnation of the product was this, you know, search and indexing software that organized content from, uh, this is all pre-cloud. And so, you know, it used to be in the enterprise that all your Word documents were like on an NT file share. Like there were these physical, you know, servers where you... The F drive. Yeah, the F drive. It was like the company F drive. <laughs> and there'd be lots of those. And so Plumtree's, you know, first product was, well, let's index all the places where where content exists and organize it kind of into categories on the web where instead of sort of like mapping to an F drive and like only your computer can browse it and it's kind of woeful to find it through search, we'll give you a web interface that's like, you know, and again, this sort of dates the time, like Yahoo differentiated from Google you know, unsuccessfully in lots of ways. But one thing that it did is it curated the web into categories. And Google just gave you a search box that, you know, quickly became kind of good enough for you to find anything. You didn't actually need to see sports content in a sports folder. You weren't kind of browsing, you were just searching. And Yahoo really was sort of like a browse first and kind of search second in a category. And so you could narrow your search by saying, I'm really interested in content about basketball. And so I would drill into sports and then into basketball. And then I would search and I'd sort of like, you know, get a bunch of curated content or index content on the web. And Plumtree's, you know, first product was, let's do that for kind of all of the content that's scattered around F drives, you know, and NT file shares inside of the enterprise. And so it was a knowledge management system. There's a big category, enterprise software category around knowledge management. And it quickly evolved from that to kind of augment the web experience in the same way that Yahoo did with consumer portals. And so, you know, back in the 90s, it was the thing to do where you would kind of create a front page to the internet on Yahoo, and you'd be able to have your stock quotes and your your sports scores for your favorite teams and weather in your city and, you know, news from, you know, the news sources online that had them that you wanted to to kind of pull together. And it gave you kind of a, a simple digest of all the things that you cared about. And Plumtree's idea was, well, companies should, you know, offer the same thing to their employees, where on your intranet, you know, which again was sort of like an early technology approach where companies kind of had webs inside of their their firewalls sure. and began to have more web technologies that were accessible to their employees, that you would want kind of a curated front page to all that stuff. And so you'd want, you know, a view of requisitions that you need to approve in kind of your HR system. You'd need you know, POs that you'd need to click yes on from, you know, SAP. You would need maybe a snapshot of your email, you know, inbox. You'd have kind of a, a list of, you know, workflow items from the document management system like Documentum. And if we could composite all that together into, you know, a personalized web experience, you know, that that portal, that front page would, you know, save people time and kind of increase productivity. And it, 
that's part of the reason why that sort of like, you know, Plumtree created the corporate portal market, the portal market for, for enterprises. And, you know, it was uh, a concept that had a lot of merit. It's sort of like, that's why the company grew from zero to 80. You know, the concept was heavily copied in sort of like the late 90s and 2000s. And actually, you know, the, the product that probably most people remember from that era is a product called Microsoft SharePoint, which effectively was that. It was like, how do we aggregate kind of access to content into kind of a personalized web experience for, mm. you know, people and teams? Yeah. And, you know, Plumtree had a great ride until, you know, every enterprise software company at the time, Microsoft, SAP, BEA, Oracle, PeopleSoft, you name it, like every big enterprise incumbent said, well, I'm going to have a portal on top of my thing. I'm going to have, you know, my PeopleSoft. And it's not too hard to add, you know, they were called portlets at the time, but it's not too hard to kind of integrate some part of the web experience of, you know, a sister product or some other thing in the enterprise. So, you know, your my SAP or your my PeopleSoft becomes more valuable as a starting point for your day when you come to work. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, actually. So your role there evolved. So you went from inside sales to be kind of field sales. And then it sounds like you went a little bit more international. Yeah. So, you know, part of what attracted me to Plumtree and, you know, away from Oracle is I felt like in a startup, you know, meritocracy thrives. And uh, it sort of kind of doesn't matter what you're doing or even what you're good at. It sort of matters how quickly you could learn and be good at something that the company needs to do. I was excited by that prospect where, you know, there'd be more things for me to figure out, to learn and figure out if I'm good at and figure out if I could do and more opportunity to, to test myself. And so maybe, you know, the first example of that was when they said, well, hey, you've never kind of sold in the field, but we need somebody to do it, go out and do it. And I became kind of the Western account manager for the West. And but when, at the time, I, I thought, because I, I grew up in Washington, and I thought, you know, if I teleport into the future, it, it might be nice to be, you know, back home next to friends and, and family and, you know, maybe live in Portland or Seattle again. And that, that was sort of my long-term dream at the time was, you know, eventually maybe move back home from California. But what had happened was I was the only sales rep um, at headquarters. And so I kind of managed the sales at plumtree.com email address inbound to the company. And, you know, somebody was from Chicago. I was like, you know, hey, Jim, you know, here's Chicago. If somebody was in New York, I was like, hey, Shelly, here's New York. But kind of everything else we didn't have a rep for, I just managed. <laughs> and so we started to get all this inbound from, from Europe and from, you know, like way more in Europe because like Europe, you know, began to kind of awaken to the concept and, you know, was sort of a fast follower behind what enterprises were doing, you know, in North America. And so all of a sudden I had pipeline with, you know, really big companies, Shell and British Petroleum and um, Nokia and, you know, all of these sort of like, you know, big European juggernauts. And I went to the, you know, the VP of sales at the time and I just said, hey, listen, you know, all of a sudden, like there were real opportunities where the CIO of British Petroleum or British Telecom or Nokia wanted to meet with us because they were very serious about deploying our technology kind of broadly. And so there was only so much you could do over the phone from San Francisco. So I, you know, I went to the VP of sales. I'm like, look, I've got kind of all of this pipeline, you know, that's been built. And I, by the way, I've been closing deals, you know, in the Pacific Northwest and in the West Coast. But what are we going to do about this stuff? And he was like, well, let's, you know, let's go over and do this CIO meeting with the British Petroleum together, see what else you can build up. So I built up, you know, for him and I, this kind of like, you know, incredible week of meeting with big companies all over Europe. And within the, the week after that, like we closed, I think we closed 
British Petroleum or one of them that, you know, was, was one of the bigger deals in the company. And, you know, he's like, man, we, we need a European operation right now. And so he gave me a choice. He's like, and I know you've been thinking about, you know, the Pacific Northwest was exploding for us because it was pre-Microsoft. And so like in pipeline in the Pacific Northwest, it was mm-hmm. Boeing and Warehouser and Car and I mean, you name it, like it was every company in, in the Pacific Northwest. And he said, this is like 99 now. And he said, um, do you want to go over to, to London and kind of like start Europe and, you know, we'll hire a team around you, but you can sort of like, you know, be the flag that we plant over there and kind of get things going. Or do you want to, we're going to have to carve up the West and we're going to have to add people in California and Oregon. I mean, you know, the company's growing, so you're probably going to have one of those opportunities. And I was like, man, I would love to go to Europe, but you know, th- and this is sort of a funny story. I was like, but I know somebody, you know, there's a friend of mine that, I think you should interview for the uh, Pacific Northwest, you know, account manager, the guy that, that'll run that territory. And so we were going back to Europe again, like three weeks later to sort of like deal with his pipeline. He's like, let me meet your friend. And we were flying to London out of San Francisco. And, uh, you know, this good friend of mine from college that, you know, is probably one of the most accomplished salespeople I'll ever meet. But he was selling, uh, I think at the time he was working for like SC Johnson Wax as like a sales rep you know, selling like shaving cream into a grocery store, like no technology experience, I think. But we flew him down and um, Jim and I were flying, the, the VP of sales were flying to, to London and Matt had flown down from Seattle and I introduced the two of them and, you know, our, we had like two and a half hours before our flight or something. And so Jim said, um, hey, Matt and I are going to talk, you know, like go grab a cup of coffee. And I went and grabbed a cup of coffee and kind of waited and sort of like watched them talk. And then... <laughs> They kind of flagged me over and I kind of walked up and, you know, Jim, the VP of sales says, so, hey, Jay, uh, why don't you say hello to the next uh, area sales manager for the Pacific Northwest for Plumtree? And so he'd like had given kind of Matt the job on the spot. And the funny addendum to that is that next year I'd moved to London and that next year the company did, we went from three to 30 million and Matt closed nine of the 30. Wow. <laughs> and so he, you know, I mean, I knew it was going to be a good territory. I didn't know it was going to be that good of a territory, but, you know, I think testament to his skill. <laughs> and then, you know, I'd ended up in Europe and had a great time and sort of like built Europe up. Um, you know, we hired an MD and, you know, I was both selling and then, you know, part of, I guess, you know, a culture carrier into the company that we were building, extension of the company that we're building there. And then I had kind of a, another choice where they were like, this has gone really well. You know, Europe's sort of grown up and exploded. That was part of like our 30 to 80. It was that European expansion. And I'll tell you one funny addendum about that. That was a mistake I made. But then they said, well, do you want to stay in Europe or, you know, selling? And kind of, do you want to run the Nordics or do you want to run, you know, like Eastern Europe or what, you know, what do you want to do? Or we're doing the same thing in Asia. Do you want to go there? And I said, I'll go to Asia. And so, you know, we started the Asia operation in Australia. And then I ended up, running Asia and spent a year and a half in Australia and then moved up to Singapore and spent a couple years in Singapore basically running the region. And, you know, the one funny addendum, and then I'll I'll pause, is I'd seen what had happened in the Pacific Northwest, you know, with pipeline that I'd started. And so when I kind of negotiated the Europe thing, I said, well, what about all this? Like, I've got all this pipeline. I've been working for a while. We're hiring reps that you want me to hand pipeline to. But, you know, like what's, I, I want some kind of recognition for, for laying the groundwork here. How do I participate in sort of the success of what Europe's become that I've, you know, I've contributed to with Pipeline? And we kind of worked out a deal where they would pay me in stock 
And and the mistake there is like, you know, a plum tree at the time had had sort of like a pretty high valuation and then had gone through, the, you know, the dot-com crash kind of followed that. And so out of all this equity that was granted mm. at like, you know, 12 bucks a share. And when plum tree went public, it eventually went public at like, 450 a share. Mm. So I was sort of underwater on all the stuff that I had. Uh, I, th- I thought that it was clever to negotiate for equity at the time. And I, I learned a cash is king lesson, at least in that case. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. I mean, the crazy part is like that's, you know, such high growth at that rate at that time. Like what, what slowed Plumtree down? Like, cause I think the, the ultimate acquisition by BEA was for like 200 and something million. Yeah, it was. Mostly Microsoft, okay, um, and secondarily, you know, just all the noise in the enterprise space that I mentioned around, you know, BEA, Oracle, SAP, it, you know, every big enterprise software company came out with something that looked and smelled like what we had, and it it just was a headwind in terms of convincing customers that we were unique and and different. And then Microsoft, you know, it's interesting to look at what Microsoft does uh, today when they decide to compete, because at least back in the time. It wasn't instantaneous, right? Like even though they were a global company, you know, they really kind of put a dent in our in Plumtree's business in North America. And by the way, I was in Europe at the time, and it took them a long time to kind of enable. Like I was leaving Europe by the time that Europe, you know, began to have a little headwind, and I was going to Asia. And then when I got to Asia, you know, the North American reps were kind of frantic, and the North American business was, was slowing down, or it slowed down significantly. The European business was just starting to slow down. You know, APAC was taken off. It just felt like it. Every I was always sort of a little in front of Microsoft, kind of switching on their global sales channel and kind of enabling both their indirect channel and their direct sales organization to really talk about SharePoint as a new product. It took them a couple of years, but you know. And then the other thing was the dot com crash happened. You mm-hmm. know, Plumtree was primed to go public at the end of two thousand. You know, we were had had the S one on file, and you know, I think was a a very hotly followed company. And then the dot com crash happened. We sat two thousand one out, and then went public in two thousand two mm. with just a very different kind of growth profile mm. than we had in in two thousand. You know, I, I stayed with that company. It was basically with that company for twelve years through the acquisitions. So it went public in two thousand two, and got acquired by BEA in two thousand five. And then BEA, you know, got acquired by Oracle in 2008, and I was effectively with Plumtree's product line that entire time, and that was also a really good learning experience because, you know, I went through the the journey of, you know, Plumtree had a really generous lunch program, you know, that that I think at the time in the city was probably maybe one of the only companies that did that. Now that's sort of table stakes for a software company. You've got you know meals provided and all that sort of stuff, but it was you know one of the most popular portlets. In our portal was the lunch portlet, where we had kind of figured out a way to kind of web enable all the PDF menus at the time from restaurants around the city. Some developer had sort of like, you know, ingested them and, and sort of like, you know, figured out a way to represent them on the web in a way that we could kind of order lunch through, you know, a bunch of different places. We would like pick a restaurant kind of per day, but we would, the whole company would basically order lunch online through this kind of portlet. And then it'd get delivered, and we'd all eat lunch together, and the company would would pay for it. And that was, at the time, felt like just this incredible benefit, and also like you know fostered all these social connections. I remember like some of you know just sitting around the table and talking to engineers and and just learning about all sorts of different things from from those. But you know when the company hit harder times, 
we needed to pull back from some of those benefits. And I went through kind of the arc of we're actually going to have to say goodbye to people. I went through a layoff, which was, you know, super painful and hard. And then we, you know, began to kind of ratchet back. Well, actually, like, we're not going to subsidize lunch anymore. We're going to subsidize just half of lunch. And, and then it was like, you know, we'll still bring lunch and kind of organize that. But, you know, you pay for it yourselves. But, but we've got kind of vending machines with snacks that, you know, you don't have to put money into. You just push a button. And then it was like the vending machines cost a quarter. And then the vending <laughs> machines, you know, and it was this, this progression of, of, you know, the company mostly just trying to make it work. But it was really hard culturally. And, you know, the other thing that I learned, you know, through that is, you know, there was a sense of, even though it was a great culture, there, there was a sort of like a little current of, of kind of entitlement. You know, at the end, people were really rubbed the wrong way because, you know, hang on a minute, where'd my free lunch go? And I remember the CEO at the time, you know, just said, you know, you're, if you're in it for free lunch, like you're, like you shouldn't be here because like we're, you need to be here to fight for the survival of this place. And that's going to be a lot of hard work. And it means that there is no more free lunch. We, we can't afford it because we're trying to keep people employed. And that's what this is about. And I, I remember being, you know, really influenced by that and then being, you know, committed to the mission even through hard times because it was hard. And that kind of perseverance and, you know, like stick it with itness, you know, the people that kind of like were in the foxhole saying, like, we're going to do everything we can you know, to fight for the survival of this place, you know, had a huge impact on me. Yeah. I mean, do you think there's, you know, sort of hindsight being 2020, like, are there things that Plumtree could have been doing differently from a product perspective, from a go to market perspective? Like, is there anything you look back and you're like, oh, I wish we had, you know, done X, Y, or Z, or maybe had we done it, it would have increased our chance for success? Any of those sort of like insights? Well, I think now, you know, the, the lessons that I've taken away over the past handful of years is, you know, like pricing and packaging matters, mm. you know, in kind of the market. And it could have been that, you know, Microsoft always had the ability to either be more aggressive or more, more bold. But, you know, it was also, it was hard for us to turn on a dime with the way that we were structured. That would have been the thing that I would have done is I would have said, you know, the, the, it was a very expensive product. Cause, and, you know, this was the generation of, really complex enterprise software, perpetually licensed, all kind of on-prem client server. Like, you know, Plumtree started as a client server. I mean, I went through the the evolution of client server to web. You know, Plumtree's first product, that kind of indexing thing was a client server technology. We actually installed kind of the directory client on your Windows machine. Yeah, as like a Java app. No, I think it was like probably a C plus plus like native. Oh yeah, like Word was yeah yeah, yeah like Word yeah, was yeah. I mean, exactly. It was sort of like yeah. it was a Windows client app that connected with an NT server that did all the indexing. That was the first product, and then it evolved. And that server was like installed in the customer's environment, right? Yep. Like they would install it in their server closet, etc. Yeah. Then web technologies came around, and and it went to the web, but it was still kind of a you know the client server web architecture where right. you know the client became the web browser, but everything was installed kind of on-prem to do sort of all the, the heavy lift for things that you wanted to browse and the web pages that got generated were you know by a server that was installed on the on the customer's infrastructure. And and perpetually licensed, you said as well the whole time too. Perpetually right? licensed with maintenance support, you know, at 18% of the perpetual license. So the perpetual license fee was a thing that you were working hard to mm. to win. And that was in the hundreds to millions of dollars. You know, so that's a hard ship to turn on a dime where you've got a big competitor 
that, you know, is sort of priced comparably, but has, you know, like Microsoft bigger distribution and, you know, sort of a bunch of inherent advantages that are tough to overcome. You know, I'd like to think that knowing what I've learned kind of over the past, you know, decade or more with Atlassian and sort of like seeing how, how companies have evolved and how software, enterprise software has evolved, you know, it's like easy to say, man, if we only could have done those things back then, it would have been different. But the structure would have made those changes really hard. Yeah, the thing that we did do, you know, and this was actually, it's, it's a funny story about my, my introduction to Atlassian because, you know, we had recognized that just staying the course, you know, wasn't kind of a winning strategy. And it would have been re- really difficult to sort of like retool the distribution model around that product. We actually like and compete in the face of, of all of these big juggernauts that, you know, claim to have the same thing that we did. It was just like every customer opportunity was just sort of a into the Thunderdome death match, right? And so the thing that we did do is we said, well, we've got to reinvent our product strategy. Like we've got to pivot here and try to salvage what we can from like really good customer and market and product-oriented DNA. And we've got a good sales organization. If there's something else that we can fit into the market to sell, you know, that'll work. And so we had kind of pulled the best product thinkers you know, from around the company. And, you know, Plumtree had more than one, one product at that time. It had kind of a content collaboration system that, that was sort of a little bit like Documentum or a little bit like Broadvision or, you know, companies at the time where you could create web content. You could upload a document and you could check it out and it had workflow mm-hmm. around it on the web and stuff like that. Um, and it had a reporting, it had a bunch of different things. And um, so we had pulled kind of the best product people from all of those various products and said, hey, we're going to form a new team. And your mission is to basically come up with, you know, with a, a new product strategy. And so no pressure, but, um, you know, kind of you got to save the company. And at that time, I had moved back from APAC into marketing. Um, and so was running marketing and, and sort of aspects of product strategy. And so I was connected to that team. And I went to check on that team in, I don't know, three weeks in, a couple weeks in, just to see what, sort of what ideas they were floating around. And, uh, you know, I walked in and, the, and they were, we had given them kind of a part of the office where they had their own space. And I remember it was like, they'd called themselves IDO. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they had kind of comfy couches sort of like in the, I mean, they'd kind of decked out their little space. And by the way, all those, all those folks have just gone on to incredible careers, but all like just super smart and connected, you know, engineers and product managers. And I went to, to check on them and I said, hey guys, you know, what have you guys come up with? And they were like, well, nothing really yet that we're excited about, but look at this product that we're using to riff on ideas together. And they gave me a demo of a product called Confluence from, <laughs> you know, this little Australian company called Atlassian. And, you know, I'm like, man, that's, the irony here is thick, right? Like we are a collaboration yeah. software company, effectively... <laughs> Tasking you with coming up with new collaboration software that we can sell, and you're using <laughs> someone else's collaboration software, and um, that was my first introduction to Atlassian. Like I think in its maybe its second year, you know, I went back to my office and I, you know, I was like, God, what is this little Australian company that I've never heard of that these guys are excited about the products that they're building? And I remember I looked and I was like, Man, their their products are so cheap, and. Yeah, I, I sort of had this idea where I was like, man, if we acquired this company, we could add a couple of zeros to their their product prices, give them to our you know very talented kind of well equipped enterprise sales organization. Sure, and maybe we could take some of our products they talked about kind of distributing over, over the web at the time. Maybe we could take some of our products and have a version of our products that we could sell through that online channel. 
like maybe there's kind of a, a marrying of both of these approaches and products that actually would, would give us the boost we need. So I went and pitched that to the CEO at the time. And he's, he's like, sounds interesting, go figure it out. And, um, and this is like 2004, I managed to track down Mike Cannon-Brooks, the you know, founder and co-CEO of Atlassian. I managed to track him down on the phone and had this kind of whirlwind conversation with him where you know, I was asking him a bunch of questions like, what's your revenue? And like, how many customers do you have? And what do you think revenue will be next year? And, you know, like, what's the product strategy? And we sort of like had this, you know, meandering conversation for about 40 minutes. And then at the end, he, he kind of cut me off and he's like, mate, sounds like you're trying to figure out if, if you can buy us and, and we're not for sale. And I said, well, really at any price? And he's like, Probably not at any price, but you know it, it it would at least have to be thirty million. I remember this vividly, <laughs> and at the time they had just done a million in revenue. It was like you know his version of no, like there is no price because thirty times, you know, was just crazy at the time. Yeah, not crazy now. Yeah, so it was sort of like just uh, book closed. But that was sort of like you know it's funny how how life works. That was sort of like my serendipitous connection to this company. I love that in so many ways. Then went back to kind of you know figuring out plum training. By the way, the, that team, that IDEO team, came up with things that we ended up building, and then we got acquired by BEA, and, and sort of the products like didn't really fit into BEA strategy. But they were they were incredible things. Like that, I think like now now you see more of like they they were basically sort of a version of sort of the social web for the enterprise, mm-hmm. like pre Yammer, pre Jive. Like we built that. We had built um, kind of an enterprise version of. Uh, like a social bookmarking service like Delicious mm. that I still think would be a useful product in the enterprise. We'd sort of built that. It was a, a different way for people to to signal that content is valuable and to build kind of an expert network on top of that signaling. We built a product that you know predated uh, low code, no code, but was it was basically like an application builder for you know, internal apps inside of a, a business where you could do a whole bunch of stuff with kind of drag and drop elements on a page. It, you know, it was sort of inspired by how the enterprise at the time was littered with, you know, access databases and Lotus Notes apps and FileMaker Pro, you know, app. Like there, there wasn't anything kind of in the modern client server kind of web architecture for the enterprise that was giving people the ability to kind of pull data into a web experience. And so we built that. You know, kudos to you know that IDEO team because they came up with things that now I think there's you know big businesses have been built around. Yeah, I was actually thinking sort of a similar thought as you talked about the challenges of growing Plumtree. Kind of asked the question just to see what, what you thought. Like, could you have done anything? But I think there's this. It's funny because Plumtree's uh, origins, you know, sort of being compared to consumer and taking so much from consumer. But there's a very common sort of concept and narrative around consumer startups. During the dot com boom slash bust, that like those many of those ideas became companies later, right? Like the classic is like Webvan became you know Instacart and like Amazon Fresh and all these things. But from what you're saying, it actually feels like the same things probably happened in enterprise, right? Where these companies, it was just kind of more of a timing challenge, and, and that timing can sometimes be around market size and opportunity and technologies that are available to make it happen, but. You know, it's probably worth revisiting a lot of those, those sort of like older concepts because you know, oftentimes what we've seen in the web, the consumer web is like that. That time has come for many of them. Totally, yeah. T- I mean, timing is everything. So you know, there's sort of great um, solutions to problems that are just a little bit early. Yeah, that's interesting. 
Okay, so uh, before we dive too much deeper in the last game, which I really want to spend a bunch of time on, just like talk about your transition from sales and sort of like running these international orgs into product marketing and marketing, because I think that's an interesting part of your career. In the context of Plumtree, it was a relatively easy transition because I had you know spent, you know at that time I guess it would have been like six or seven years selling and then running a region, so running a sales team. So I'd sort of like grown up into sales management, but had you know deep experience and appreciation for the customer, the market, the problem we were solving, you know, deep connection to the product. Like I understood the product like the back of my hand, having sold it for so long. And I was, you know, I was in Singapore, we'd opened Japan and Korea and China and, you know, APAC was was going really well. But I was worried about getting stuck in in Asia Pacific as as head of sales for Asia Pacific or, you know, head of APAC. And I'd gotten married at the time, and you know, my wife and I, you know, were thinking about starting a family, and uh, you know, in my late twenties, I guess at the time, and, and wanted to get back to the U.S. And it was hard because the U.S. was, you know, as I'd mentioned, the U.S. growth had had slowed, you know, because of Microsoft, and it was in, you know, sort of like the thick of like of all of the competition in the landscape, and so there wasn't really an opportunity to kind of go back into a sales role or a sales leadership role. And so I was just kind of, you know, trying to find out if there's something that I could do that was interesting because I wanted to stay with a company and uh, if there were things that I could do. And, and actually like the first thing that I came back to was, um, and th- this was also sort of like they, they kind of created a role for me in like, you know, business development where there was an idea around, well, could we OEM our technology into all of the enterprise companies that don't yet have a portal but may want one? Like, is that sort of a growth strategy? And so could we go to kind of Documentum and, you know, all of the business intelligence vendors like, you know, business objects and microstrategy and companies that probably, you know, most of the listeners won't remember, but could we go to them and convince them that, hey, actually, you need a portal too because the world of enterprise software is becoming portalized. And rather than build your own, you actually get one that's built that understands you know, like we can ingest all of, you know, the open kind of portlet concepts. There were like standards around how portlets got built and all that sort of stuff. And we had kind of portlet building engines and a bunch of things that might matter to you. So I came back to try to figure out if that was a business and quickly discovered that it wasn't. It was just too heavy of a lift for all these companies to kind of ingest our technology. And, you know, it, it was like, it would have taken them a year, you know, I think to really engineer it. Um, in a way that you know they'd effectively be white labeling, but engineering our technology into theirs, and the economics uh, on the other end of that weren't meaningful enough. And so I sort of did that for six months um, and realized that you know kind of came back to the business and was like, I just don't think this you know this is going to work. Like I think we've proven that it won't. And then there was an opportunity to take over product marketing, and I was interested in that because you know it was an easy transition. You know, when you've been selling, first of all, you work really closely with product marketing because product marketing, you know, is creating the collateral and the positioning and you know the competitive kill sheets and all of the the stuff that's enabling the sales organization to represent the product um, in the right way. And I had you know kind of been doing my own product marketing before we had product marketing, mm. but I also like you know understood selling. Like I I had a pretty well informed perspective on what's successful. And so it felt like it was it was an easy transition, you know, because product marketing is in traditional enterprise software the most closely connected marketing function into the field, right? Like product marketing goes to the sales kickoffs, and 
is the first to pitch the new deck or the first to to give the the new demo or the first to to rip apart a competitor and analyze it and you know talk about the ways to differentiate around it it was a chance to learn something new again and you know they gave me that opportunity and it was a relatively easy fit because of the things that i mentioned and then you know shortly after that like uh you know the the person that was running marketing left and they said do you want to, you know, it was sort of battlefield promotions, right? Like, <laughs> you know, they were like, all right, you know, this company is still struggling and, you know, we need somebody to run marketing. Will you do it? And I was like, yep, I'll do it. You know, I always say that I benefited a lot of my career from staying with a company that struggled when, you know, when other people were leaving and they're like, this is getting hard and I'm going to go where it's easier. Staying kind of in the hard opened up a bunch of opportunity for me professionally to sort of like, you know, grow my career and kind of acquire new skills, but also just, just ladder up. Um, and put me in a position, by the way, to, to get my, my, when I finally put my head up and wanted to look for something new and, and just coincidentally, you know, saw Atlassian was looking for, for an executive. I was an executive because I'd sort of like stuck through, at least in Plumtree, it stuck through kind of the thick and thin to, to earn it along the way. Yeah, I love that. And I'm guessing that you also probably, you know, you developed a lot of long-term relationships at Plumtree and BEA, I'm guessing, from folks that you worked with that I have no idea, but I'm guessing that you've worked with some of them again in later roles. But yeah, for sure. My group of actual, you know, lifelong best friends, um, the intersection of all of them, there, there's, you know, there's some people that that I went to college with that ended up working at Plumtree and, you know, a, a gaggle of people I just met there. But, you know, there's 10 of us. And the one thread that kind of weaves through us is, is that experience, you know, in our 20s at Plumtree. And, mm. you know, I think almost all of us were there a long time. I love that. Cool. So let's talk about the transition to Atlassian. Because I think, you know, obviously Atlassian is just such an interesting story. Been around for a long time. Sounds like, you know, you had this interesting experienced that with them and then four years later you joined right so you they were around for two years you had this experience trying to you know poke around to acquire them and then sounds like they stayed on your radar and then you, you saw a role but tell us about how you kind of joined and and let's get into some of the the things you learned at Atlassian. so yeah subsequent to that first uh, interaction with mike um you know bea had acquired plum tree they offered me a good job and i was interested you know bea was I think the fastest at the time the fastest company to get to a billion in revenue? Wow! At, at least in enterprise software, it was, and so you know it was a company that sort of exploded, you know, up in the in the late '90s and early 2000s. And Plumtree at the time I think had 550 employees when it got acquired, and BEA you know probably had 5,000. And so I was interested in like what does a 5,000 person company look like? Like I've been part of this startup. They grew to 500 people and went public and had lots of ups and downs. But what does a big company look like? And I have a chance to kind of be an executive inside of a big company. And by the way, they'd, they'd acquired Plumtree and held it as a business unit and then acquired uh, you know, another company and put into that business unit. It was a business process management company. You know, so on one dimension, you know, I had kind of the air cover of this big company and it was sort of like, I got to go back to school and kind of learn, like, how does a big company do annual planning and mm. you know how does it in headcount planning and budgeting and all the things that you know would be different and bigger but still have kind of the context of the products that I knew and loved and cared about kind of in the market so that's why I was sort of thrilled by that opportunity and 
it was, I learned a lot. It was, it was a great two and a half years and, you know, learned some things that I liked about how big companies worked and some things that I didn't like, uh, but all sort of like in pursuit of, you know, just learning. And then when Oracle bought BEA in 2008, I just, I'd been there for 12 years and I felt like, okay, it's time to kind of poke your head up and look around. I, I you didn't want to accept that twenty four thousand dollar salary with Oracle when they acquired you <laughs> again, yeah. And it's funny to come full circle where I was yeah. just like, you know, my my professional career kind of started or could have started with <laughs> with Oracle, you know. And then I was like, yeah, I, d- I don't really want to work for Oracle. I've sort of seen five thousand. I don't need to see whatever they were at the time, you know, like thirty thousand or forty thousand. Sure. And so an analyst at Gartner that I knew sent me the job description for, you know, Atlassian was looking for a VP of marketing. And, you know, she was like, I, I love this company and I know that you're not going to go to Oracle and, you know, you should look at this company. I'm like, oh man, here's Atlassian. And, you know, I hadn't really paid close attention to them, but, but over the, the intervening four years, you know, whenever I'd visit a customer, I used to, you know, like take stock of what, it, what it, cause we were still selling Portal technology. And mm. so like part of the value proposition, we're going to integrate a bunch of things kind of into this, sure. you know, modern web experience. What are the things that in the business that you like and what are the things that you loathe? And like, give me that list. And Atlassian was always on the list of, we love this, this product Jira and Confluence and like our users love it. And so it always just kind of blipped on my radar around, yeah, we've got this Atlassian stuff that everybody's super excited about that's kind of grown in the business. And that was kind of like over the intervening years, they always just, I, they kind of like bubbled up in customer conversations. And then I, I kind of like did a little homework and they'd, you know, come a long way since I saw them in, you know, 2004, but um, had all the, the properties of just a great company. They had a, they had a great culture. You know, I think Mike and Scott talked a lot about the culture that they're building and Plumtree had, had had a great culture and that mattered to me because I'd come from one and I, I knew how important it was. They had, Great products that customers were fanatical about. I was super intrigued by the early formation of the business model uh, because, you know, having gone from from selling where you're really focused on conversion and closing, but really one to one, to marketing where really marketing is about one to many. It's about like what are the things that I do that generate demand broadly, and what are the assets I can create that can influence conversion broadly. Even if in the hands of a salesperson, like I'm working on kind of the one thing that's going to matter to every customer that we're trying to close. And so the latter part of my career kind of switched on this one to many synapse where I became really interested in that sort of like leverage and scale that you can get from activity. And here in Atlassian was a company that was focused on kind of one to many selling in effect, right? Like where you use the internet to distribute and acquire a customer. And you're constantly focused on removing friction to acquire thousands of customers, you know, a, a month or thousands of customers a week. You still have to have the same instincts around how am I going to get them to close? Like, what are the problems that I'm solving? What's the what are the obstacles in the way? Those are all sales problems. But in the context of you know marketing, where you can solve them at scale and you can solve them, you know, for loads of customers. And so I was just super intrigued by. By all of those things, and and then I, I then I was like I just you know I hope for whatever reason that you know my my little interaction with them in two thousand four where you know he was like hey this is a butt sniffing exercise and we're not interested for whatever reason they wouldn't hold it against me, but I met Mike and Scott and kind of met various people on the team and you know I'm I'm fortunate that that there were things in me that they wanted and needed and there were definitely things in in Atlassian that I was excited about contributing to, 
And by the way, it was also a chance to kind of like go back. Um, and I haven't had a chance to do this too often in my career, but the thrilling part of being in a, in a startup and kind of growing is you're, you're forever, you know, I, I describe it as you're forever breaking new ice in front of you, right? Like you're, you're one of those, you know, sort of like ships that cruise through the Arctic and it's just, you're plowing through, you know, new ice and you never really get to go back and say, well, like this is smooth sailing because I've already broken this ice before and I know how to do it. And that, that's, I, I derive a lot of energy from that. But then when I went to Alaska and all of a sudden, like it was, you know, there were things that I had built before that I knew how to build again. And that was also like another part of Thrill, which is like, oh, okay, there, I've been in this situation before. It's kind of different, but I actually know what to do here. I'm not kind of feeling my way in the dark or, or guessing. I know what to do. And what Atlassian kind of added to that was, was just this deep orientation around first principles where, you know, Mike and Scott valued experience, but didn't overvalue that, you know, compared to, to just thinking about how you'd solve a problem just faced with it for the first time. And they didn't want kind of the, you know, oh, I know how to do this. I'll just do it the same way I did to override your curiosity about how you would do it differently or how you may do it kind of in a, in a situation with some different ingredients. And that was, I learned that really quickly there because it was a company just angled around kind of, we don't care how things have been done. We, we care about how we think they should be done. That was, I had kind of had the best of both worlds because like I had an opportunity to kind of lean on things that I'd done before and so be a little confident in some situations. But I also had sort of like this, this canvas in culture of invention and wanting to like take prior art as just a data point, not as, you know, the, the recommended path forward. Uh, I love that. Talk about how that was sort of nurtured and like came to life at Atlassian. It was, I mean, like I think you see it most prominently in the business model, right? Like you see, you know, Atlassian, you know, somewhat famously, you know, was always described as the company without salespeople. And, you know, largely that's true. We can talk about uh, kind of the nuances there, but, but I think Atlassian was always told, Hey, listen, like this model's cute. Maybe it'll get you to a million or ten million, or you know, there was always sort of a different yardstick. People would say like the model won't won't work past this point. Mm. Just so you know, right? Like we've never seen a company that has done what you're trying to do north of ten million, or north of fifty million, or north of a hundred million. And every time like we got through whatever what the high watermark that people told us we couldn't break through, it just became a higher watermark. It was all you know, always just people said, ah, well, you won't. Okay, you did it, but you know, you won't get here. And I think it was, you know, we weren't dogmatic about it. I think we were always really thoughtful about what's the right way to grow and what's the smart way to grow, given all the all of the the factors, right? Like market, competition, customer, competitive landscape, expense and cost, growth rate of revenue, like all of those things sort of are a careful chemistry that, that kind of went into how we thought about the business model. But I think it would have been easy to you know, to just say, yeah, yeah, you're right. Maybe you're right. Like we need to de-risk. Everybody's telling us we can't. So we need to de-risk this by doing it the way that people say we should. You know, another example is that I think features prominently in how the company is constructed is like, you know, they ship their second product in a very different product, by the way, in effectively their second year. And so at, at the moment when Jira, their first product is taken off, they sort of like divide their focus and they begin to build um, a product called Confluence, which is a very different product. Like, I mean, it, yes, it complements, you know, sort of what, what development teams, you know, needed to do in that workflow, 
but it's a very different thing. I mean, you could have said like, hey, and it was like Confluence's, you know, first incarnation was sort of like purely as an enterprise wiki. There were lots of wikis around. And so they could have just said, yeah, we're not actually not going to try to build a better wiki. We're just going to use the ones that that exist. And they they built a better one. And everybody would have said, don't do that, right? Like, don't divide your focus. Like, focus on the thing that's winning right now. Put all your energy there. But when I think about, you know, what we benefited from, we benefited at a really early age from having to think about priorities and having to think about cross-selling and having to think about like pricing and packaging, you know, with a portfolio. Everything is dimensionally a little bit harder, but, you know, we built those muscles really early. And by the way, Confluence was a successful business. I mean, that helped. And so, but, you know, it also added kind of some complexity to the business at a really early age that I think was a strength. You know, and it's always tough to play the counterfactual, which is like, well, how much bigger could Jira have been if you hadn't have taken, you know, a third of engineering and began to build a second product? Um, but when I look at how we operated, you know, 10 years later, like a lot of it is just muscle building. We built muscles at a really early age that most companies, you know, when we were 10 years old, most companies were just beginning to think about. They're like, oh man, we have to have a second product because act one only is only going to get us so far like now we got to come up with act 2 and by the way then we have to infuse different dna into who we are and how we how we work and when you do that at 20 people it's easier than when you do it at 200 people yeah that's really interesting i mean there's there's so many different angles here i think to be able to successfully market multiple products i mean it, it is hard right like that's not it's not easy but i think what you're saying is that if you pull it off you are set up for more success longer term. It's like you've kind of built the foundations earlier. Yeah, because you know how to do it. You've figured out how to do it. And then, you know, new people that you hire into the company, it's easier for them to get acclimated into how it works in your context, right? Because you know how it works and you know the things that, that you're working on to make it better and improve. And I just I just think there's lots of ways to build great companies. Yeah. But you know, I think we built a great company. Differently than as you know, than a lot of great companies are built, and I think that was an early example where I think that that second product. And by the way, you know, like Atlassian, I think acquired companies that it added to the portfolio in maybe like its fifth year, or fourth year. Oh, so even before you got there? Yeah, even before I got there, they acquired. Oh, interesting. There was a little company called Senqua, in and it was Australia. So it was a little opportunistic. It was you know, I think people that they knew and they built mm-hmm. you know some tools for developers that. You know, we're integrated with Jira, kind of on the periphery of Jira. But if I think about it, I think, you know, like what gave them the confidence probably at the time to acquire, and it was, there were like three products in there. I think like a product called Fisheye and a product called Crucible and a product called Clover. So they effectively, you know, more than doubled the product portfolio with these things. But I think that what gave them the confidence to do that is they'd already expanded N, right? Like they already had two. Yeah. And they'd had a couple of years of understanding, like, how do we manage both of these things? How do we price both of these things? How do we sell both of these things? Like they they had confidence to say, like, oh, we've done it with two. I think we can do it with five. Then I think we can do it with six. And you know, Atlassian's got 15 or 16 products in its portfolio today and kind of a long history of both organic product development, new things that it adds to the portfolio that it builds and things that it acquires. But I think all of that's come from, you know, you could say, well, it would have come 10 years later, but I think it would have been different and it would have been, I think it would have been harder. 
Yeah, so I, I want to definitely dive into some of these acquisitions and much other things. Uh, but just for quick context, you know, we talked a little bit about like, okay, how many products they had at the time, but like, you know, how big was Atlassian when you joined? Who were you reporting to? Was it all based in Australia still? And, you know, how many customers they have or revenue? Just like any any context around when you joined, so that way we can kind of build up from there. I think you know when I joined, it was about a hundred people. You know, there were there were about. I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 people in San Francisco and everybody else in Sydney. There was, there was a, a guy named Jeffrey Walker who was Atlassian's first president. And I think that, you know, he joined maybe in 2006. So I joined in 2008. So he'd been there for a couple of years. And he was a cancer survivor, just super incredible guy. Also another reason that, that I, I was excited to join the company. And so he was effectively running you know, everything customer facing was running, you know, sales and marketing and support and customer service and all that sort of stuff. And I joined to be VP of marketing and reported to him. And he was a cancer survivor. And, you know, I think like maybe, I don't know, like nine months after I joined, his cancer came back oh. and he got super sick. And, and I think, um, it was like maybe five months after that, he, he passed away, oh. which was pretty traumatic. Uh, yeah, that's that's terrible. You know, he was beloved by the company, and and you know, he just had a huge, bright, energizing personality, and so that was that was kind of a hard moment, um, definitely for the company. And um, his blog handle was Radio Walker, and there's still Radio Walker conference rooms inside of Atlassian with you know a little kind of recognition of of who he was, kind of in the earliest days. And so that was sort of size and shape, and you know, and then I I was sort of had the experience uh, to take over, um, you know, what he was managing, and so kind mm. of took over sales and support, and tried to you know step into his shoes as you know kind of the the you know an extension of Mike and Scott, and you know the management team in the U.S. and you know began to grow kind of the business operation in the U.S. and effectively took over as president shortly after that and did effectively the same job the entire time that I was I was at Atlassian. Yeah, I'm sure he's looking down and really proud of of what you and the whole Atlassian team accomplished over those years though. I mean, it's come a long long way since then obviously from now near a 50 billion dollar market cap, right? So, yeah. I think he would be. You know, and and it's like every brick that you lay into a building matters to the building. Yep. And you know he laid some important bricks, and so yeah. you know people are still laying bricks that makes Atlassian, you know, taller and stronger. But man, those foundational bricks matter. Yeah, those cornerstones. Cool. And so you know, you, you kind of mentioned that you were you did quote unquote kind of the same role, you know, a, after you became president. Like, what was in your purview? Like, what were your responsibilities? What orgs kind of did you manage? Always, uh, I managed everything customer facing, and so you know, marketing, sales, support, customer service. You know, I managed lots of odds and ends, kind of over the years. So I managed, you know, corporate development and M and A. I managed IT. You know, managed biz ops and strategy. Various points responsible for you know our, our strategy and annual planning cadence. Um, the last four years, I managed. All of our on-prem product development, mm. and so you know, it's uh, man. There's lots of different things. You know, when the business 
you know, needed me to manage something and, and kind of either be a custodian of it or grow it. In some cases, it uh, made sense for those things to kind of move into different functions when we had leaders that, you know, that, that had kind of the latitude and experience and capability to manage them. You know, but the common thread, you know, for me, I, it was all of go to market was, you know, the thing I was most passionate about. And, you know, naturally, kind of where my experience set is anchored and kind of always ran that. Perfect. That's super helpful. And so, you know, when you joined, you know, how like quote unquote enterprise ready was Atlassian and were the products? You know, obviously there's probably lots of teams inside of companies using it, but would you say the software and like the different products were generally like, you know, enterprise hardened and had all the features that enterprises needed to roll this out company wide? No. And and it's interesting, another unconventional thing that I think Atlassian did. We were selling into the enterprise, but because you know, it was software that largely targeted teams and, you know, teams could expand into other teams and, and then into organizations and then company wide. Um, we were still selling into the biggest companies in the world. We just weren't kind of going wall to wall and we were okay with that. But, you know, like there were things in the product like that I think, you know, had some rough edges around, you know, scale. Like some of it would be performance. Um, some of it would be simple things like, you know, if you were going to add a user to an access control list on a page, you know, there'd be kind of a user picker that didn't have search. <laughs> so, if, you know, if you had a thousand people, you'd have to scroll down a list of a thousand people to pick the user. You know, like we discovered kind of with time that eventually somebody would say, like, hey, I've got a thousand people in my access control list, add a search box, please. But, you know, they're like, you know, little kind of rough edges like that in the product. Um, and we were constantly making sure that, that it would support. You know, bigger and bigger populations of users. Um, the thing that we did a little unconventionally is, you know, we would have begin to have, you know, some strong signal from bigger customers that wanted to kind of expand usage and that wanted additional capability from us. And we sort of deferred attention around that for a while. I mean, it wasn't acute. Like it was like, hey, listen, you need to improve performance in this, or we want to be able to run this across kind of multiple physical machines, or you know, we want kind of different admin controls where for the on-prem stuff, you know, we can actually like cycle through an upgrade without bringing the system down, like that sort of stuff. And we, because it wasn't really acute, it was like, hey, we really need these things, but it's not like we're not moving off you. We kind of deferred. There were other things that we were focused on we, that we felt were, were more critical, like building, you know, the cloud platform and the cloud infrastructure for scale. And so we couldn't do both of those things at the same time. So we chose because it wasn't acute, we're going to actually like park the enterprise focus for a couple of years, and you know make sure that we're attending to those customers and we're honest with sort of the roadmap. But it's not a, an urgent priority right now, and they should hear that from us. And we sort of deferred until the point that it actually became a little acute. Um, and by that point, we had probably you know thousands of customers with more than a thousand users, and you know we were in. 80% of the Fortune 500 and you know 60% of the G2K. I mean like if you looked at kind of penetration in the enterprise, we were already there. But a lot of the things that they needed we we hadn't yet built for them and so we finally focused on it and basically built an enterprise grade version of the on-prem products that is called uh, now Data Center, mm. the Data Center product line. And that was effectively, you know, an upgrade or an upsell to the existing kind of enterprise base. So if you had more than 500 or 1000 users, there was a, a version of the product that, you know, we'd built for that kind of scale and added a whole bunch of like really important capabilities for admins and, you know, and and for these big enterprise businesses. And 
we did that, you know, in 2013 about, and, you know, so we were already over 10 years old and again, had lots of enterprise logos, but we came out with this enterprise grade product that we actually priced, you know, significantly higher than just the standard version that they were using. Mm-hmm. And that's actually where we we introduced a direct selling organization because we weren't sure whether or not we could convince customers to, you know, in some cases spend five or ten times as much as they were spending on the standard version by taking that upgrade. And so, um, we, you know, we we added basically we call them enterprise advocates. We added you know a very small kind of like surgical you know strike force to go to these customers and understand whether or not we could convince them to upgrade to data center. And you know, when we did, when we realized that we could, the way that we scaled that business was both through our indirect sales channel and then making the, the product available for customers to buy and upgrade online. And then those three dimensions of converting customers like all kick in. And um, that's sort of what made our enterprise business accelerate as fast as it did. That's really interesting. And so okay, a couple pieces in there to pick apart. Do you think that like one of the reasons you were able to sort of push off some of the these features and pains for these enterprise teams was because you were realistically pretty low priced at that point? And maybe they were just like, okay, fine. Like, yeah, you know, at this price. Okay. So that's part of your thesis there. It was it was a combination of like the products were important. Users love them. Yeah. And so like even if there were some things that they wanted us to do, we were pretty sticky. And you know we were very affordable, and so you know if there were things that they wanted us to fix, and you know they were going to consider moving away from us, the thing that they would move to there'd be an economical deterrent, <laughs> and so there was probably a little bit of frustration, which like why why don't you do these things that we're asking you to do? But you know they still had incredibly important software and an, an incredible value. And it's not user frustration; it's like administrator frustration. <laughs> yeah. Probably some end user frustration too, kind of around performance. But sure, you know, I think in in hindsight, we chose those priorities really carefully, and I think they were the right ones, right? Because it allowed us to build a really robust cloud platform for all of the customer segments that we serve. And remember, I think you know Atlassian, you know, serves everybody from you know a five user company or a five user team up to hundreds of thousands of users. And that's by the way, a really hard to do. Yeah. You have to make really careful choices if you've got the opportunity to support that broad of a customer base. You have to pick and choose what you do because it's difficult to do everything all at once. And so I think that we were, we were really methodical and careful about that choice. Yeah. So one of the things that I always like thought about Atlassian, and I think maybe part of the reason why the you know as a public company it has done so well, and you know obviously I'm putting out this thesis for you to respond to, but was that like that low price? There was just always so much. Sort of room for you to increase prices with customers, you know, by adding new features or adding new, you know, capabilities, or just even just raising the price as they used it more uh, in larger tiers, you know. And you compare it to something like Oracle, where it was like they were already maxed out on price, you know, and people felt like they were getting, you know, raked over the coals when they're buying Oracle stuff. Like with the Atlassian stuff, it was like, oh yeah, this is all still pretty inexpensive, and so the ability to expand, the ability to charge more, I think, is what. To me, that's been a key part of what's fueled your growth. It is. Okay. It is. And it also adds to the equation of, you know, customer love and stickiness. And there's a whole bunch of of other things mm. that add to it. But it, you know, it was a core part. I mean, you know, we we focused on this idea of ubiquity 
you know, really early where we just believed that every company should use one or more Atlassian products. That was the trophy we were chasing. We weren't, mm. you know, we weren't excited just to get the 500 biggest companies to use us and spend a lot of money um, or the 2,000 biggest. That wasn't what we were after. We were after everybody. And we felt like we could serve all those customer segments the right way over time. And then it just becomes about, you know, sort of like trade-offs and prioritization. Like you could say, hey, listen, if you would have focused on the enterprise business earlier, you, you would have influenced growth earlier. That's probably true. But it may have uh, distracted us too long away from building the type of cloud platform that we needed to build that actually is like the future of the company. Sure. And it would have deferred that by by years. And there's a cost to that. Like there's an opportunity cost and there's potentially a competitive cost. There's a whole bunch of things. It's always hard to say like, you know, again, like if you move the chess pieces around, like what does the game look like? Because it's all hypothetical. But to your point, I think like, you know, price was always an advantage. And you know, interesting, if you think about it, it when we were even like pre-enterprise, like part of the thing that gave us anxiety is sort of there were companies that were dedicated and focused on the enterprise that were growing faster than we were. By the way, so Rally is a good one. Rally went public. Mm, yeah. And I should, I, I can't remember exactly sort of their revenue trajectory, but you know, it was a company that was directly taking on Atlassian with a, a pure enterprise focus and approach. So top-down selling, kind of out in the field, you know, pretty expensive, go after the G2K, went public. And you know, the move that we did actually, that we sort of let let all of the the companies that that angled just the G2K that were competing. We, we just sort of just let them go there and we lowered price and we lowered price at the bottom end and the entry point. Like we went from a thousand dollar 10 user license to a $10 10 user license, which was virtually free. Oh my gosh. Wow. And none of them, none of them copied that move. They all, they all sort of said, well, you know, I guess we'll leave Atlassian to the low end. And, you know, what they missed there is that entry point meant that we permeated even the biggest companies with, you know, dozens and dozens of 10 user teams. And we just entered bottoms up and became kind of the user choice. And even if a CIO was negotiating with, you know, the sales team of, of a competitor, if they just pulse their users and if they did a side by side comparison of product, because we we're also investing more in RD, like they would hear, oh, geez, this is both cheaper and our users want it more. And so we would we would win without having to complement it with with the similar sales strategy. Yeah. And what you know, if you look at all the companies that we sort of competed with at the time, I mean, a lot of them aren't around anymore. And they had built kind of like like Jive was a competitor and Rally was a competitor. Both those companies went public and and had built built reasonable businesses in the enterprise segment, and then eventually got gapped, like just ran out of the ability to kind of grow in that market. And you know, you know this too, but I think it's like once you're in the enterprise market, there's lots of examples of this. Salesforce is, you know, it's hard for Salesforce to like really go mid-market. You know, ServiceNow had a mid-market product that they killed. I mean, there's examples of incredible businesses, incredible enterprise software businesses that then when they say, well, actually, we also want to sort of reach into the mid-market and kind of grow business there, it's tough. It's tough because of the way the product's built and oriented. It's tough because of how it's priced. It's tough because of how it's sold. There's just a lot of things that are hard to kind of reconfigure. And in, in many ways, it's sort of similar to how difficult it was for, you know, for on-prem companies to kind of make the transition to cloud. Because everything's different, and it, you can't just say, "Well, now we're also going to have a cloud business." 
you know, like history is sort of littered with companies kind of like failing to make that transition successfully or at least swiftly. Yeah, I'd actually love to jump into that. Obviously, I'm uh, super interested in sort of how Atlassian made that transition. I think you took a, a somewhat different approach than a lot of other companies. So to sort of talk about, I mean, obviously, I think probably when you joined, I'm going to guess like 90 plus percent of the revenue was from your on-prem so I think when you went public, it was like 70 or 80% was from your on-prem business. And so let's talk about sort of the strategy around making that transition, but sort of managing both and keeping both along the way. Yeah, I mean, it's been, you know, we've always celebrated just the customer's choice. And, you know, we started as an on-prem business. We actually started the cloud business really early, right? Like, mm. you know, and I think first incarnation of it was sort of like, we'll host our products for you. You know, sort of like the application service provider approach, maybe in like 2006, and then came out with um, with sort of the first incarnation of the cloud platform in like you know 0809, and then have just been you know continuing to modernize that and you know make sure that it's built for the hundreds of thousands of customers that are on it today, and you know the future hundreds of thousands. You know, you know, I think we were really early in recognizing that there's a material benefit to customers in the cloud. And there's a benefit to us because, you know, of the velocity through which you can acquire customers and kind of the additional telemetry that you get around how your products are being used that help you both shape the product, but also help you engage and activate um, users and customers faster. And then just, you know, broadly, you know, the the trend, like you could see it coming. But there's still going to be, you know, industries and customers that are slower to make that transition or have reasons that they're not ready to make that transition. And so we've, you know, maintained on-prem for them. And 95% of customers today, you know, start in the cloud. And, you know, the the rate of of migration for existing customers to the cloud has been you know, accelerating over the past five years. And so I think that the, you know, the destination is sort of clear. And, you know, I think we've done, you know, a really incredible job of managing both platforms. And by the way, also modernizing both platforms, which is hard. You know, oftentimes you see the enterprise software company kind of incumbency in on-prem getting displaced by somebody else in the cloud. Sure. You know, on, on one level we had to displace ourselves. Like we, you know, we had to you know, kind of compete with our on-prem business, you know, in a way to make it even more desirable, but not, you know, intentionally handicapping kind of the on-prem product for customers, you know, for whom it's still important. That's a hard thing to do, right? I think history is sort of littered with examples of companies that just couldn't do that, and they're replaced by the cloud version of them, right? And you know, I'm super proud. It's like hard work, but I'm super proud of of how you know Atlassian has has managed that over the years, and I, I think customers are too. Like you know, we've celebrated that choice uh, while still you know trying to kind of highlight the benefits of cloud and can you know there's things that you can do in the cloud product that you can't do in on-prem without tremendous effort. And I'll give you an example of one of those. You know, we Confluence is a collaborative content writing system. You know, it started out as a wiki, and now it's sort of a full-fledged collaborative content system, um, you know, for businesses. And we came out with, um, you know, a real-time synchronous editing experience, you know, in the cloud, which is pretty easy to do in the cloud, or like not easy, but easier to do in the cloud. And very difficult to do on-prem, but we did it. And that's an example where, 
you know, I think we've been true to saying like a lot of this innovation, a lot of the, the differences that you'll see in sort of like a modern cloud product, we're going to try to bring to the on-prem product. Mm. And eventually, like, you know, I think Atlassian probably has to make some choices around when are those things too difficult, you know, for kind of a smaller customer base that's remaining on-prem to do. Yeah. The crazy part is, you know, your server business, which was sort of these one node licenses where you'd install Jira or Confluence onto a single server, and they were it was the same price. It was like, yeah, ten dollars for ten users. That business had massive consumption. Like there was, you know, and I think you you used a lot of partners, and so there's probably a lot of MSPs that were deploying that for customers. And I think, you know, just recently the the team at Lassian actually end of lifed that specific server offering. It didn't end of life, you know, all of the on-prem offerings because they still have that data center product that you're talking about. But sort of this idea that smaller companies with ten users should be deploying and managing on-prem software—that's the narrative that I think was moving away from at Atlassian. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, I think if you look, the, there were two versions of on-prem, kind of the standard one and, and the data center one. And the data center one was always priced comparably. It was actually priced identically to the standard one, beginning at like 500 users. Mm. And so it was a better product at 500 users for the same price as sort of the non-enterprise one. And then I think you know if you looked at below 500 users, like you know there may be particular reasons for a 200-person company to say I want this behind the firewall. But but you know we worked really hard to remove them. And then there were you know in some cases like the on-prem was you know still just like super, super cheap. And so somebody could say, well, it's a little bit cheaper, so I'm actually going to download it and kind of install it, and not recognizing that you know, there's additional costs that make it a lot more expensive for them over the long run. And you know, there's a belief that the cloud is, is ready for all those users. It is. You know, it's, it's ready for all those users. It's where should we go? And kind of maintaining on-prem products for smaller companies and smaller teams doesn't make sense. Where we've got one actually that, you know, for five, maybe if you've got 100 users, you have to buy the 500 user license at the data centers. It's a little bit more expensive than you would have for the 100 user, but that that's actually the price that you should be willing to pay if on-prem is a hard requirement for you. Yeah, exactly. And I'm kind of realizing, you know, because I listened to a, a podcast with one of your architects maybe a couple of years ago talking about the latest cloud platform and all the choices that were made. And one thing that struck me is that, you know, they were basically completely separate products, like that, you know, Jira. On-prem offerings and Jira Cloud like had two different engineering teams, product teams, support teams. Like they were run almost like separate, you know, organizations. Correct? Yeah, it wasn't always that way. It, it used to be like the cloud was effectively the on-prem code base right. that was then shipped to the cloud. And we, when we uh, really chose to kind of modernize the cloud and you know build it for. You know, multi-tenancy and kind of re-architect it to run workloads on AWS. We effectively forked the code base, and you know, actually, that's when I took over the on-prem products and began to kind of rebuild the cloud for cloud native, which you know we needed to do. Mm-hmm. And you know, that that division happened probably like six years ago, five years ago, something like that. Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously, our thesis is that eventually your on-prem product will merge back again with that cloud native architecture. And you know, and you'll be able to serve sort of those customers from at least a more shared code base. But you know, those things take time. So yeah, okay, that that's super helpful. I really appreciate all that context. And and I guess you know, just for 
I don't know. I mean, do, are there any? There's probably some amount of public numbers that you that were shared throughout your tenure there in terms of how big that on-prem business was versus the cloud. Assume I think, like I said, during the IPO, it was like seventy percent. I'm sure over time it's diminished in terms of revenue percentages instead of customer count. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think Atlassian's, you know, they probably even talked about it in the last earnings call, but you know, it's diminishing as a percentage of total, and cloud is where you know a lot of the growth is. I mean, there's still growth in on-prem because it's it's a big business in the enterprise, but it's a rising tide. Yeah, yeah, cool. Okay, so let's hop into a couple, a little bit more about these acquisitions that you made because I think that's one of the the really interesting things. Is you know, you mentioned 15 products, a lot of those through acquisitions. You know, some of those like. Bitbucket seemed to go pretty well, but maybe HipChat not as well. Like, how do you think about you know the acquisitions? And I mean, obviously Trello, I think has gone really well. But like, talk about some of those and sort of you know how you think about them. Yeah, I mean they're they're all different. I think the one kind of common signal in all of them is that we were early in identifying kind of the market opportunity for those products, and you know, and kind of the great technology. And then they're all sort of like logical. Complements or adjacencies to where we are, and so I think we mm. did a good job of sticking to our knitting. And you know the dynamics in in kind of all those markets, you know, are, are different. You know, HipChat, HipChat was you know I think an example of you know maybe being a little bit too early, mm. and also not uh, if I'm really self critical, not recognizing like how big that market could be and how quickly the market could open up. Mm. You know, it's hard. Like sometimes, like I mean, I think even you know Stewart at Slack would say it was. You know, like he didn't anticipate that. And it was sort of like this combination of timing, you know, also in, in concert with, you know, social media as, as sort of like a word of mouth channel. Uh, at the time that HipChat and Slack, you know, and especially Slack were, were just kind of emerging, you know, really Twitter as a way for people to share what they were really excited about was just emerging. And that was, I think that was a pretty important accelerant around kind of market awareness for, you know, chat and real-time communication. I mean, certainly there's been, you know, analogs that kind of predate it, but like the modern approach to that sort of like took off as people began to use it and, you know, were excited about it. And, you know, I, I think that's, it's sort of, a, it's hard to transport yourself back in time knowing what you know now, right? Like it's hard to sort of like take all that and be like, oh, like here's what it looked like. Sure. You know, I just remember we were looking at HipChat and it was sort of growing faster than any other Atlassian product. And you're like, man, that's just like look at that growth. It's just great. <laughs> not not recognizing that oh, it could be going three or four or five times faster than that. And and we need to build a product for that. Like we need to build a product for that kind of scale and that kind of growth, which is, you know, probably the thing that we should have done earlier. Yeah. But I mean, there's like the the one side is you saw the opportunity you acquired this company for probably like, you know, realistically pennies in the dollar in terms of opportunity and it was growing. You're like, oh, this is great. But like, you know, I guess the insight there just being like, okay, we should have invested more and gone at it even harder in order to capture the full opportunity. Yeah. And sometimes it is about like timing matters, right? Timing and and sort of these things that, you know, that are Amplifiers in the moment or amplifiers around the space. You know, it's like chatter, you know, like by the way, the product matters a lot too. But mm-hmm. you know, like chatter kind of predated, you know, both HipChat and Slack, I think. And, you know, very different product and approach uh, to both of those, but also, you know, maybe didn't live up to its potential, its full potential when you when you think about like what it could have been. And, you know, I, I think when I when I think about, you know, Slack did a, a masterful job of you know, building kind of a great product and then also 
capturing the zeitgeist, ca- capturing the moment, you know, by being an authentic company and listening to their customers and continuing to like not falling over and continuing to sort of like ride kind of the energy of what is this thing and I want it and my friends are using it and they're excited about it. And that's a really hard thing to create, mm-hmm. right? Like you can't, you can't manufacture that. Like it, it's sort of like in the moment you're, you're sort of paddling with it. You know what I mean? And you, you have to like paddle with it and be really good. That takes a lot of work too and skill and doing all the right things, but it's really hard to create the current. Yeah. I mean, when you talk about, you know, chatter, your yammer, these other things that I don't think that they were even really close to what Slack ended up becoming, you know, because ultimately the integrations were so valuable. But I mean, this is, the, I mean, this is like actually intended as a compliment. Like HipChat was definitely the closest, right? It was like, it had the makings for what could have happened there. And I think that you're right when you say that it's sort of sometimes it's just about timing, it's about market, you know, sort of how they perceive it. And and then eventually, you know, that that ends up being the multiplier. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, HipChat predated Slack by a couple of years. And right. it's uh, you know, for whatever reason, Slack didn't use it. I've never asked Stuart why, but maybe they did and they just they were they were like, ah. They're like IRC people, I think. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, it's funny. It's like sort of like a what could have been if they had used, you know, they had just used HipChat. Yeah, that's funny. They uh, when they were at Tiny Spec, were building a game, right? If they had used yeah. HipChat instead of trying to build their own thing. One other piece that I, I don't think many people talk about, and I don't know if you have much insight into, but I know that within Atlassian, you've always had a really strong both like partner ecosystem, but also third party. Sort of application marketplace ecosystem, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, spent through your systems with these applications in your marketplace. Was that always a kind of a key part of the the growth and the strategy? Like, how did you nurture those that marketplace and those ecosystems? It's a really interesting case study, you know, because marketplaces are also really hard to build. And the way we built ours, I think, was also a little unconventional. We started with extensibility, just as sort of like a core principle of the product. Like, there are APIs. You know, we're going to use them to build the product. We're going to let you use them to build extensions and add-ons and plug into the product in a way that feels native. We started there, and that kind of existed for a handful of years. And, and customers used it. Third-party developers began to build around it. ISVs began to kind of integrate with it. And then we needed. We had sort of like a, a volume of these things that existed. You know, like developers that were building. So we did the, you know, all the kind of right moves around creating developer docs and you know a little bit of a community where developers could find each other and created uh, an event called Atlas Camp where we brought you know developers in the ecosystem together physically. You know, for three days to sort of like work with us on APIs that they wanted to improve or add. Did all that, and then you know for the customer. We wanted a coordination point to point them at these things, and so we we the first incarnation of the marketplace was just a directory. It was like, okay, we're going to work on curating where they all are, so you don't have to hunt and peck, mm. and we'll be a, a sort of a central kind of pointer to where these things exist. You know, then we just recognized that a lot of these small developers and ISVs had to do a heavy lift on like, great, I've built something that people want, but now I've gotten. By the way, this is like again all. Sort of pre-stripe and pre maybe easier ways to sort of like build kind of like a simple commerce front end on something, but you know it was hard for them to kind of create that and then manage the selling relationship with the customer. And from the customer's perspective, it was hard for them to basically buy ten things from in, in ten different places and have that be scattered. And so you know it was pretty easy to say, well, we've already got this directory, like we're we're pointing kind of everybody at all of these things. 
it, we can add sort of a commercial store to this and make it easier for both the customer and the developer. And that should encourage more volume and should encourage, you know, more customer demand. And that in turn should encourage more supply. It's sort of like that virtuous cycle. Yeah. And that's what happened. And, you know, we've always seen, you know, the marketplace, I think still Alassian would echo this, seeing the marketplace is not, you know, a, even though it is a big source of revenue, like not a source of revenue, but a source of, of this pretty potent kind of ecosystem, partner ecosystem and kind of network around the company where, you know, businesses are being built on top of Atlassian. And that matters more to us than, you know, the money that, that we're making. Um, and, you know, the money that we're making really is, I think, just supporting kind of like all the things that we're doing to make it better so more people can build businesses. It's, it's, that's where it works. And, you know, the other benefit to us is, you know, we're a customer, A, gets more value from the platform because there's more things that give them value. And that value in turn increases our stickiness, right? It, mm-hmm. it, it, there's more things that they're using and so it becomes more compelling. It's not an easy thing to build. There's lots of examples you know, in history where companies have tried to, to do it. And I think one thing that they do is they say, well, hey, here's a store, you know, now start building for it. You know, I, I think that's hard. Like we tried to do, and, and Plumtree tried to do that with portlets, mm. you know, where we tried to build a marketplace of kind of portlets that you would build and it just didn't work. And I, I think the fact that we had critical mass of developers and there was so much surface area that we allowed them to build on that was actually mature meant that that when we did begin to commercialize, they already had businesses that were being built, and that was a signal to other developers that, hey, actually, like I could, I could build something to make money from it. I'm going to do that. I'm going to kind of also guess that potentially some of these, you know, these tools added functionality that maybe filled gaps. And you know, we talked about some of those enterprise features and, and requests. You know, maybe some of those gaps were filled and made those problems less acute because the marketplace existed. Yeah, that's right. It's like we could focus on sort of the pieces of the platform that we need to build. Yeah. And kind of the long tail of different things that that you know various parts of our customer base needed could be provided by third parties. And some of those could be like, hey, there's a demand for it. And you'd be like, well, you could build that. And you know, we have a, a system of SIs or other you know partners that could even build it for you and manage it and they could sell it again in the marketplace. That's right. Oh man, yeah, that's that's beautiful. That's really nice. Let's take a quick uh, jump into what you're doing now because you know you've left Atlassian and joined Bond. So tell me about what you're doing there. So Bond is a growth stage uh, investment firm, and um, I'm an investor now. I mean, the main reason that I did this is after you know being a builder for uh, you know 25 years, kind of focused on just building kind of one thing in one company. It's thrilling to to get to work with lots of different companies in lots of different markets. Um, that's sort of point one. And you know, the growth stage of what companies are trying to kind of grow through and where they're getting to, I've just got a lot of, you know, scar tissue and experience around and and uh, you know, the chance to be helpful and useful, you know, to founders and entrepreneurs that are thinking through how their business model gets architected and all the different dimensions of what they what you could do when you build your business model. Is exciting, or you know, even like how the culture is going to change as you go through these inflection points of 100 employees to 500 employees to, you know, to 5,000 employees, or how your strategy, planning cadence, and operating rhythms need to evolve. Like all that stuff is, I've just got a lot of, and so part of what drew me to investing is the chance to be useful to companies that are going through the phases that I've I've been through because it's not easy 
and then the thrill of learning about their businesses, learning about their markets. And, you know, that's sort of the, the really exciting part of the job. With maybe a little less stress and the pressure. Well, I'll feel their stress and pressure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> You'll kind of miss those moments too. Though. I mean, those moments are, I mean, you, you know, you're in it right now. I mean, those moments are, even though it's stressful and, you know, there's anxiety with it, it's also at the other side of it. You know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Yeah. And just what stage are you looking to invest in primarily? We are uh, growth stage. And so, I, you know, I would say it's like past product market fit. You know, you've trains are on tracks and kind of you've got uh, repeatable revenue and you understand how to define your market and the customers that you're going after. But there's still a lot of building and execution to do. And your first investment, uh, was it Zapier? No. Uh, my first investment was, I'm on the, on the board of uh, Zapier, the predated bond. Oh, okay, predated bond. Got it. But I might know my first investment was uh, a company called Sentry. Oh, Amazing open source company. Yeah, fantastic company. Love them. Jay, I know you got to run. This was so great. I really, really appreciate all your time. Oh, thanks, Grant. It was fun. That's all we have time for today. If you're interested in being a guest on this show, or if you'd like to suggest a topic, or just to learn more about enterprise features, find us at enterpriseready.io. To learn more about Heavybit, visit heavybit.com to check out the library. It's packed with amazing talks on sales, marketing, product, and general management from founders of developer tools companies and other industry leaders. This podcast is also brought to you by my company, Replicated, where we enable cloud-native software vendors like HashiCorp, CircleCI, Sneak, and many others to operationalize and scale the distribution of their modern on-prem applications to their largest enterprise customers. Check us out at replicated.com.